Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic and with me as always is Aaron Cameron. The podcast is powered by First National as it is every time we do one of these. We have an interesting guest today, you know, interesting for me at a personal level. We've got Brian Rosen, who is the president and CEO of Colliers Canada. I know I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I, I did start out my career there. So I'm definitely familiar with the organization and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. I enjoy your work and I'm glad to be on here today. So we always jump in with the history of the person, how you got to where you are today. But yours is particularly interesting in that you only had you know, a year at Collier's in a leadership position before the world went sideways in March. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear the perspective of trying to integrate yourself into a company at a senior level. And then, of course, when you get you know, knocked off your seat in short order by a world change that shook us all. Let's go back in time and talk about your history, Brian. Sure. As you said, it's kind of a wonderful start here. Joining, I think they announced my position as CEO the first week in March. And I was taping a video for the organization with David Bowden, our former CEO. And it was like, oh, you know, the market's just going a little bit up and down. Things will be fine next week. Don't worry. Commercial real estate persists. And then within a week, we were shutting down offices and the world was changing forever. So that was even before day one officially in the role. So what I will say, if you look back in time, I have an unfortunate track record that way. I graduated undergrad just before the dot-com bust. Even when I went to Avon, I worked at Avon Products and Corporate Strategy for a couple of years in 2004, just when their stock tanked by half when I joined. I graduated business school in 2008. That speaks for itself. And then I went to Houston, Texas in 2014, right when oil crashed. Now I'm here. So I guess I'm the good luck charm. The Grim Reaper. <laughs> the Grim Reaper. <laughs> Brian, no more moving for the for heaven's sakes, for the That's benefit it. of the global society. Just stay at Collier's <laughs> for the rest of your life, please. At least, at least we found the cause of everything. So at least, you know, the, the root cause, the five whys. It's uh, Brian changing industries. And there yeah. you go. It must but, make you adaptive, though, or, or a good problem solver when you're constantly jumping into a boiling pot of water. <laughs> yeah, it humbles you. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, you know, I, I started out my career in consulting, management consulting, corporate strategy, spent you know, about six years in that. And then you know, after business school, went to Iron Mountain. And Iron Mountain, very interesting company. I spent about 10 years there. I had nine roles in 10 years. Eight of those roles don't exist anymore at the company. Kind of made it up as I went along in some regards. But it's fascinating company in transition, disruption. It's a REIT. While I was there, it turned from a pure business-to-business services company into a REIT in 2013. And so going through all of that over the last 10 years, really, you know, as you said, adaptive. You learn how to change and pivot and be able to you know, learn a new industry, learn a new way a company functions. As I said, it changed around roles a lot. So it really positioned well, I think, to set up to change industries again and move over to Collier's in 2019 pivoting over when they were looking externally for someone outside the traditional real estate, sort of real estate adjacent, I guess, because Iron Mountain, as I said, is a REIT, but really they were looking for someone who's a general manager, someone who's led a large organization. And so having spent about 10 years there, that's what sort of led me to want to shift careers and Collier's looking at that as well. Well, related to that, I got to ask you, you know, when you look at your bio, it mentions that you managed 60 locations when you were at Iron Mountain. Yeah. And knowing what I know about you know the brokers community, I imagine that every single broker must have called you at some point looking for a meeting. Yeah. So we had a global relationship with one of the real estate services companies. It wasn't Collier's, unfortunately. The partner we had did a good job. Most brokers respected that. I have to say my favorite persistent was a Collier's guy. 
So Ben Williams called me up a few times and was persistent. I think I said no about four different ways about, you know, not my call, call this person, talk to this person, talk to this person, but got to respect the persistence that we had here. So I'm glad it was a Collier's guy that was trying to break down the door. At my time at Collier's, I sat maybe five desks down from Ben Williams. And I can uh, attest to the fact that he, he's a pit bull on the phone and Absolutely. would not be too afraid of a no to call you up a couple no. days later and try again. Absolutely. One more related question to that. Do the brokerages have distinct pitch styles? I'm not going to ask you to name each one, but if you know you're meeting with a Navis Young person on Wednesday and a CBR on Thursday, you know, in your time at Iron Mountain, could you formulate your head a little bit about what the pitch was going to look like? No, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I don't think so. I mean, it was the individual, really, at the end of the day, the individual style was so different. And I wouldn't say that anyone came in as one type or the other. It was pretty general thing. I mean, I didn't meet too often with brokers. You know, I will say that, as I said, we had the national relationship. So I had my partner who had worked with was at JLL and did a good job. And anytime we needed, usually it was him and same thing when I went to Iron Mountain, sent me to Houston for two years to run the business down there in Texas. And same thing. Styles were all different depending on who I was actually dealing with at the time. Personality more so than company. You kind of went through some different experiences you had as you were moving around in your previous careers. A lot of times, I mean, I don't think you joined those companies with the intent of coming in and fixing it. Maybe you joined before there was a problem. That you found yourself fixing a problem. So I assume you kind of got good at that and probably enjoyed doing it. When you made the transition from Iron Mountain to Collars, I mean, Collars is a big, well-oiled, good-running machine, so there was nothing to fix. What was the attraction? What made you feel like Collars was the right place for you to go next in your career? That's a really astute point. I actually had fashioned myself as a little bit of a turnaround guy in a lot of regards where I actually had Avon part of a turnaround strategy team. Even my consulting days, I was consulting at Tyco just after Kozlowski destroyed the company and we were in one of the tough business units. And then in Iron Mountain, they sent me to Texas to help turn around that organization there. So you notice that and it happened to coincide with the world events, but also was situational. So you're right though, when I came to Collier, not at all that, right? It's a well-run strength to strength type of thing. So that was part of the allure. It's like, I didn't want to come in and try to turn around an organization or change it. I wanted the challenge of taking a strong market leading business and say, how do we make it even bigger? And of course, now we're hitting into, it's an industry macroeconomic turnaround as opposed to a company thing. But that was one of the allures of coming in. And, and it was coming into a new industry, but you know, having the reins, as I said, taking a business from strength to strength, that's a different type of challenge because how do you build upon what's already been great? There's always areas, right? There's always areas of a business that you could look at and say, hey, here's the ways to make it better. Here's the ways to make it stronger. So for me, that was the new challenge that I was excited to tackle. I always find it interesting what it's like to come in at the top as a fresh face, which was clearly one of the desires of the leadership team to bring someone from outside in. But you have a lot of unfamiliar processes and systems and people and teams. So what was the first couple of months like? Like, how do you go about introducing yourselves? Like, were you traveling around the country trying to meet everybody, trying to shake everyone's hand? How do you go about assimilating yourself into that leadership role to build the trust, to get a sense of the culture? And what did you do? And how do you go about that? Thank goodness I had that first year. So joining, and exactly as you said, being able to travel around, meet so many people at Collier's, meet so many clients, meet industry partners and peers. It was a critical year because now with the shutdown, I feel for our, our people who have started, people in any of these companies starting during this time period where you can't meet people, where your first introduction is virtual, which is fine, but it's not the same. And so I was very thankful. The way Collier's set this up, so it was a planned succession. 
And they had, with David stepping into a new role now, David Bowden leading our strategy and consulting organization. And it was a plan to take a year to have me sort of learn the industry. Now, I know business, right? That's why they brought me in. But it was about learn Collier's culture, learn the uniqueness of the real estate services industry versus being on the other side of it as sort of an owner-occupier. And that year spent just imbibing (laughs) everything and living it and understanding. And as you mentioned, Adam, the culture is really interesting at Collier's and I think it's a real asset for us. You can't explain it until you're in it in some regards. And so I had to experience it. I had to learn it. And, you know, as you said, Aaron, earlier, where, you know, if you're a turnaround guy, your first instinct is, let me listen, let me figure out what's wrong. But here it was different. It was, let me hear what's working really well and then look for the areas to build that, make it stronger. But yeah, it was a year spent just learning. And Collier's gave me that runway and they gave me a year. I mean, I had things to do. I wasn't just walking around going, hey, everybody, tell me what's going on. And, and what a great life I live. I have no deliverables and I'm just, you know, having a blast. No, I had a job. But I had a lot more ability to explore the studio space, to quote a great Saturday Night Live sketch. So let's do this. And we will get into COVID. And as a reminder to our listeners, Adam and I are going to digest the conversation in our after show. So once we're done with the discussion with Brian, let's do, it's January 2020. One thing I've learned, you know, again, Adam and I have the fortune of interviewing many people like yourself in leadership roles of large organizations, is they usually kind of, I don't want to use the word bifurcate, because they carve up their objectives in really kind of simple forms. They usually just have like, three or four deliverables, as you would put it. So you spent that year getting comfortable with the company. It's January 2020, pre-COVID. What were the four deliverables? What were the four things you wanted to accomplish in 2020 before you know, the world kind of shut down? Yeah. And you know, in some regards, a lot of our priorities haven't changed. The timing of some of them, how you attack them from a tactics perspective may change. You know, Obviously, there's in March business continuity and that became paramount versus other things. But you know, at the top of the agenda really is talent. You know, it sounds trite. I'm sure all of the leaders you bring on talk about it ad nauseum. But I mean, at the end of the day, particularly in real estate services, our talent goes up and down the elevator every single day, whether it's the elevator at a client site or the elevator in our buildings. We are a people business and our talent is critical. Both our leaders, our producers, our project managers, our support staff, our finance, marketing, et cetera. Everything that we have in the organization is people. And so for me, even when I was you know, joking about, oh, I had a lot of time to just meet people, a lot of that's about meeting our talent and understanding our talent and identifying what talent we need, how do we develop that talent. So for me, that was really, I mean, priority number one, two, and three. So you say you have five things, like one, two, and three, like location, 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 talent, talent, talent. Another big area that really was a priority for us is growth. You know, you look at in January and I look across our business and we have market leading positions in a lot of areas, but there's other areas where we're underpenetrated and there's new growth vectors. So where are the areas that we need to scale our business? Whether that means pursuing new market segments, going into horizontal infrastructure and our project management side, or is it areas that we're in, but we know that we're third or fourth in terms of market share? And we know that we can spend more attention on that and bring that up and upscale our capability. For me, those were two of the critical areas that we're focused on. The rest of it is how we get this business to gel together, I would say, would probably be the third thing. So we have all these collections. And one of the beauties of Collier's is we are a decentralized organization. You know, We let our businesses run, we let our countries run. But part of our strength is that we have a unified value. We're more than just the sum of the parts. But we were at that inflection point now in our company where we built up our businesses, 
We're now really, how do we integrate them together into a value proposition where a client will look at that and say, yeah, I see Colliers as a whole. They won't always buy four different services from us, but they see the value of what we can offer in a unified way and really trying to find that because it's not easy. That's an art. It is not a science because it's very easy to say, well, this plus this plus this plus this plus this. So we have, here you go. Here's our big circle with all the different service offerings we have. It's more complicated because again, most of the time clients aren't buying everything together, but you have to find those pivot points where they see the value of having all that. And that was for me a huge thing that an outsider also could bring because I'm seeing Collier's not just from one lens of I've been in brokerage, I've been in property management, I've been in project management. I'm seeing it across. And I spent a lot of time, quite honestly, in Iron Mountain doing that. Iron Mountain was a collection of amazing service lines. And then we were more powerful as integrated together. So if you ask me, those are three of the biggest priorities that I was focused on really is growth, talent, 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 and integrating ourselves into a high-end advisory shop. So if I could simplify it down, being there for your clients was critical in January. And of course, being there for them in April and July, and right now at uh, the very end of September, none of that's changed. I mean, if I can really kind of boil it down. But obviously, the way that you're there for them and the way that the, you know, the talent you mentioned uh, is there for them. If we move on from the kind of January 2020 perspective to through this pandemic, how do you keep... I mean, well, motivation is the wrong word because high-performance salespeople are always going to be motivated. But what was the direction from the top in terms of how you had to shift the way that you were there for your client as COVID's unraveled? It's been challenging, I mean, for everybody in the industry. I mean, the first few months, everything is frozen. And I think the first few months, there's a lot of content streaming out. Everybody is trying to produce webinars and writing papers. And what's the future going to look like? And here's what the podcast. Well, I I made sure not to say that because this is an ongoing thing. But, but, But there was a deluge of new formats that people were really excited about. And there was almost too much content coming out. But what it was beneficial was it gave everyone in the industry something to talk about with the clients. They gave conversation pieces, ways to engage with clients. What was challenging is as this thing extended on, where the conversations, they were the same conversations and they weren't progressing. And I think that was consistent across the industry where people are having the conversations. We still don't know. That's where people started running into a wall. You talk to a client, the client's like, I still don't know what's going to go on in the next six months. How do you continue to motivate someone? It's a different feeling than when you get a no. So we've all done cold calling in our career. You get a no, you hang up, you shake it off, you go on, you call again. You get a, I don't know. And that's a lot harder. And so I think one of the ways we really try to motivate and our leaders are great. And that's why I talk about our talent focus is getting right leadership in place is really staying connected with our people as best that you can. Technologically, making sure that you're working with them on an ongoing basis, whether you're remote, having meetings on a daily basis, and just understanding where they're at with this and wrapping your arms around which of the individuals are struggling, who's doing well, getting the senior people to help mentor the junior people, finding avenues in there, providing more one on one coaching for people who are newer to the industry and don't know what to do. For others that are more experienced, let them run. They know what to do. They've been through it before. They've seen three or four cycles. So it is kind of tried and true methods of stay connected with your people and really provide them with a lot of coaching and content to help them get through talking with their clients. And to be honest, keep talking with our clients because things change, they change. And as long as we're staying with a pulse for what they are actually going through, we're able to adapt ourselves. I think your point, there's no silver bullet. It's motivating people in an environment where it's not the same as it was by a large amount. It's a challenge we're all struggling with in the industry. Let me combine both of the last two questions. 
I find it interesting, the challenge of trying to get your different product lines to work together and talk together and sell together and to demonstrate to your clients, you have that sort of value proposition that you can do an appraisal and the brokerage and the leasing up, whatever it may be. You know, COVID must make it way more challenging to meld those things together because I think you know historically you would have just brought the leasing expert, brought the broker, and brought the appraiser together and gone and sold you know as a big team. So how are you doing that now in sort of a virtual world? Yeah, you don't show up in an army anymore at the doorstep. You won't be able to get up the elevators. One of the benefits is that, as I said before, there's a lot of client conversations. In some regards, you know, a lot of times we're more connected with our clients than we even were in the past because everyone's sort of on the sidelines trying to figure out what to do. Everyone's listening and asking questions and trying to get intel on things. So I think one of the benefits is that our people, I think, have a better sense of what our clients want and we're better able to respond because ultimately we're not going to try to push services on clients. We have to respond to what clients want. That's true for any services business. If you're trying to just hawk your wares and say, we do this, clients don't care. They say, I want this. Do you do that? And that's kind of, it's a reverse approach. So I think this has helped us get a better sense of what our clients want. And then we can go back and engage the right stakeholders internally and say, you know what? They don't want a lease on this. They actually want to sell this building. And you know what? We need to lease it up right now, but then they want to sell it. And then they want to redevelop. The buyer we're going to bring in wants to redevelop it, blah, 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 blah. So we're able to then say, okay, now let's go back and find the right folks that can add insight. And whether they need to be at a meeting or they can just provide behind the scenes, I think that's the key. But it's really about listening to the client. That's the best way. And I think this cycle has helped us get closer to the client. That's one of the positives I think that's come out of this. So related to that concept of a finger on the pulse, you know, as an example in the past, on our podcast, we've had Collier's people on. We had Jeremiah Seamus come on to talk about GTA land. We had Greg Peacock come on to talk about mid-market transactions. So they have their pulse on their silos that they live in, whether that's asset class or geography. But you have your finger on the pulse of all these people have their finger on the pulse. So from a national scope, because of course you would have visibility you know, across the entire Canadian landscape, what markets do you see accelerating in terms of a return to normal or a return to significant market activity? I mean, I know that there was definitely a pause at the start of all this. Some markets have started coming back. So from your vantage point, way up there, 30,000 feet, what markets are really showing significant signs of life? Sure. Like they've got their finger on the pulse. I've got the finger on the pulse. A lot of pulses going on here. Love a good analogy. Here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from a national perspective, well, the one thing that cuts across all the markets, and I know this is you know, an asset class answer, but industrial, you know, I'm beating a drum that everybody's been talking about on every podcast, every show, et cetera. And the industrial's just been rock solid across all of the markets. That's the one thing that's been continuing to motor forward for obvious reasons. And that hasn't been market specific as much. What I would say is it's interesting in the beginning of the cycle where we saw signs of life quicker was in the West. So the West was opening up quicker from a COVID perspective. And we saw that commensurate pickup in activity in the business. And I'm talking mainly from a transactional side. So from some of the other sales, leasing, et cetera, that was in the Western Canada. So Vancouver, Calgary, et cetera. Those things started to pick up a little bit more from an activity perspective versus Toronto and Montreal when they were shut down. What we've seen though is as Toronto has reopened, although unfortunately the case counts are going in the wrong direction right now, but as it's reopened, it's caught up somewhat. We're still seeing, I think the West is a little bit more active, but it's kind of commensurate. At this point, it's kind of caught up. So the general geographic trends are pretty consistent. Like the industry is down 
but it's, I think, consistently down across all the markets. The areas that have a higher downtown office contingent are still being, obviously, so you got your Metro Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal, et cetera. Obviously, those are still going to be hampered more because there's just a larger component of a market that has been still more on freeze. So Toronto's balanced out by a huge industrial market, right? Obviously, so that helps counteract it. But the office component across all the major metros is still hurting, right? Because people are deferring decisions on a lot of lease and sale transactions. Maybe that's a good segue, Brian. Again, I know it's tough because let's date stamp it. It's September 30th, and we're in the middle of what we're seeing as the second wave, quote unquote, with numbers yep. kind of going up a little bit, trending upwards the last couple of weeks. So maybe this is not a topical question, but what are the conversations like at Callers about bringing people back to the office? How is that playing itself sure. out in your organization? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. When we first went through this, as I said, I was minus two weeks into the job, wasn't even officially in the role yet. And David Bowden and I had a conversation was like, we can't have two chiefs for the next two weeks. So we decided to accelerate my start as sort of taking the helm of this thing. We set up a task force, did all that stuff. And the team did amazing in terms of creating a business continuity plan, just like everybody figured it out, right? Everybody got virtual and figured it out. So we've been open throughout this as an essential service, right? So we've been technically open, but we've been at reduced capacity, obviously, in all of our offices. From where we're thinking for the remainder of the year, you know, we're still, let me put it in two ways. One, we're monitoring all the health and provincial guidelines. So if they change, if they scale back, if they say, you know, we're now into phase two, rolling back to phase two or rolling back, obviously we're going to respond, right? So we will reduce the density in the office. But otherwise, you know, we've opened our offices, you know, effectively we can accommodate 50% capacity in pretty much all of our offices. Our different businesses have different levels of comfort of being in person or remote. And we're leaving that to our business units to decide because we're a decentralized organization. But, you know, we're finding brokerage is more desiring to be in the office. And some of our other businesses are fine with being more remote. And that creates a good balance because we can accommodate more people who want to be in the office. So for the remainder of the year, we're going to stay at sort of that 50% range and enable people to come in, wear your masks, the right spacing flow. It's the same thing all the different companies are doing. And then each day, though, we're playing it by ear. We're watching what all the premiers are saying and what prime ministers are saying. So it's not dissimilar to a lot of large national organizations. Brian, this is a personal question. 2022, so for sure, COVID is in our rearview mirror. What does the working from home, working in the office look like? And what do you believe is the best way? Are you one of those guys that's like, no, no, at some point, everybody's coming back. I don't want you know a hybrid. I don't want you working from home Mondays and Thursdays. Like Everybody's here or is there going to yeah. be some flexibility? What do you think is the best way to structure it? And I like this for you because you're, I mean, you're a business guy, not necessarily just a real estate guy. So if you're running an organization, which you are, where do you lean? It's interesting. And, but also, I'm, I'm a science guy. So I have sitting next to me, actually, my Principles of Virology textbook from college. My wife worked in the infectious disease thing. So our household in February had more hand sanitizer than most probably because uh, my wife was like, it's coming, it's coming. So she was right. By and then the way. you made thousands of dollars selling them on no, Kijiji, right? we did right? not sell it on Kijiji. <laughs> uh, it was on Amazon. Look, part of me is, you know, taking a macro view, is a little bit cynical about society, meaning that we're proclaiming one thing, but we have a short-term memory. And you know, everybody proclaimed after, you name your different world event, whether it was ours, 9-11, et cetera, that this will forever change X. And in a lot of ways, it didn't. And once people felt comfortable, and it could take a year or two, things revert to the mean. And so my philosophy on this in part, I mean, 
the draw of an office and office centricity is important where people form relationships. We're kind of living off of the built up relationships that we all had prior to this. I think uh, Cynthia Clute in our organization had a great quote in one of the articles that was written that was about that, that we built up this reservoir of relationship that we're now living off of. We're eating into it. Imagine if I didn't have a year where I could have met everyone. I would not have the same ability that I have now to lead the organization. So after another year of this, a whole bunch of new people coming into the organization, not having that ability to network and create those relationships. And it's broader than just, you know, water cooler talk or things like that. I come into the office, I see people that I normally wouldn't see. I have a Zoom call with the people I'm supposed to be talking with. And that's great. And I have actually better relationships now with the people on the West Coast of Canada because I can see them more often. But the people that I would just normally run into and build a bigger network, which then builds a network on top of that, that's all being lost right now. So I do think the office plays a critical role. Do I think that we're going to have everybody 100% back in the office? Absolutely not. I think this has opened people's eyes to the ability to do flexible working. So I definitely see Colliers as adopting more flexibility, specifically for different types of jobs that can accommodate that and as talent demands it. But we're not going to be a half in, half off type of office. We're not going to be a everyone's back in 100%. It's going to be nuanced. And we're going to spend the next year, six months, three months, trying to figure out exactly what the right blend is based on health as well as business needs. But the one point you mentioned also too, we are a real estate company. So we want to be where our clients are. Our clients are in the office. They're in real estate. We're touring. We're downtown. Like you got to be where the action is too, in some regards. So that's not lost on any of us here. That part of the reason why we're in this industry is because we're fans of real estate. <laughs> and so, you know, the office is an important part of our industry. It'd be a bit counterproductive for you to decide, you know what, we don't need office space. Let's just move out. Everybody work from home. That's sending a bad message to a whole slew of your clients, isn't it? And it's not even being cynical. Like we believe in it. Like we actually feel that our culture thrives on collaboration. That's part of our enterprising nature. Collier's advantage is that we collaborate. We think better than anyone in the real estate services industry. It's one of our things that we're very much most proud of. You can't do that as well purely virtually. You need to have some versions of in the office. So that's a long answer to your question. It's a tough question. But at this point in time, we're not ready to finalize what it is. We're spending some time to think about it. But it's going to be a mix of flexibility. But definitely office plays a central role in our culture. Yeah, nuanced clearly is the answer. Everybody's looking for just a, a blanket solution, but it won't be. I wanted to ask you about something that's definitely been in the forefront of the news since, you know, I think at least June. And that would be, you know, diversity in real estate, diversity at Collier's. Historically, I don't think it's any secret. Real estate's been a fairly monochromatic experience that has changed quite a bit at, you know, the entry level positions, but senior management is not. What's Collier's position with this really coming to the forefront in the last couple of months? Yeah, I think it's a critical thing for our industry to embrace. It's just the right thing to do, but it's also, it's a business advantage. You want to reflect the community and your clients. You want to bring in different ideas and different voices. I mean, even on a micro level, having me come in as a leader of the company is not diverse in a lot of ways, but it is diverse in the sense of I'm not a 20-year real estate veteran. That comes with its benefits and drawbacks, of course. But as you bring in different ways of thinking, people from different backgrounds, we think that's such a, and I personally think that's such a critical part of the business. Coming from Iron Mountain, Iron Mountain actually, a similar type of thing. It's a warehousing logistics company, a lot of truck drivers, a lot of small businesses that were acquired. It was not a very diverse organization, or it was actually, it was kind of a bifurcated diversity. A lot of diversity at the frontline level, not a lot of diversity at the management level. 
And it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes signing up for objectives and goals and being purposeful about training, hiring, things like that. So recently, you know, I signed on to uh, behalf of Colliers to the Black North Initiative. We all think at Colliers, it's the right time. But what we liked about that was there are goals and there are objectives. And it doesn't mean that we're going to neglect other forms of diversity, women, other minorities, different backgrounds. But this is one where there's some momentum behind it. There's some targets associated. And I think it's the right thing to do to help push us along in the right direction. I think it's something that the industry is embracing, although it takes time. And I think progress isn't fast enough, but we need to take actions. And I think at college, we're doing that, but proof is in the pudding. Like We have to be able to look ahead five years, say, here's where we want to be, state those goals, and then make purposeful actions to get there. Brian, we're almost out of time here, but I do have one more question. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I did start my career at Collier's. And I mentioned that to you when we had a phone call earlier this week. And your comment was, well, I think everybody in the industry started their career at Collier's. So I got to ask, why do you think it is that so many people start their careers at Collier's? Yeah, well, we have been around for 120 years, so that may help a little bit there. Look, I think it's a Canadian institution. It's a brand that's been around you know, we've been a large Canadian player for a while. And we have a culture that is so interesting and unique. And I think everyone wants to try it out once and say, you know, I want to see what this enterprising culture is about. Some people love it, stay around for 30, 40 years. And some people say, it's a great training ground. I learned a ton and now I want to go off and do something else. And so we don't mind. We love seeding the market. Take some colliers, train up people, and then spit them out into successful roles like yourself and others out there. But I think it's part of it is just our reach. We've been here for a while. And part of it is the allure of it. Look, that's one of the things that attracted me was just I had read a lot about the culture, you know, Jay Hennick and what he brings. And, and I wanted to be a part of that. And then, as I said, doesn't do it justice until you're here. And then you see what it's about. And then it, it is a really fascinating and interesting place to work, unlike any place I've ever been. And so I think it's attractive to a lot of people to at least try it out. Well, Brian, I got one last question, then we'll let you go. And sure. thanks very much. It's been a great conversation. And this is non-real estate. Before the show, before we started recording, Brian divulged that he's got a side gig of doing stand-up comedy. And I'm curious if you've got a joke for us or maybe just explain why stand-up comedy, why you got involved in it or an impersonation. Like, let's end the show on with okay. some laughter here. Then I'm that, putting you on the spot. Sorry. That, now you're reminding me of my parents when I was like younger at Passover. Do the funny thing. Do the voice. The stuff <laughs> yeah. that, you know, dance, dance. Yeah, I don't know. No, it started doing it in college. You know, always been sort of the class clown a little bit in a productive way, I guess. You know, as a business leader, you know, it was fun. Did it in New York for a bunch of years, play with a bunch of good comedians, Chris Rock, Dave Attell, Jim Gaffigan, and did a couple of shows at Yuck Yucks, which was fun. And then, you know, I guess everybody from the Colliers will wink, wink and a transition the end of the podcast into Christopher Walken. I know it's good for you to use an office, please. Use Colliers, good for you. Anyway, there you go. It's not a joke. Love it. Um, Love it. We were joking about this earlier. I didn't think it was going to come up in the actual <laughs> podcast, but hey, whatever. Happy to do it. Thanks, Brian. You're a good sport. I appreciate it. It's always really nice having you on. Hopefully have you on again with more positive discussions about you know where the real estate world's going. Of course, thank First National for powering the podcast. Thank Informa for introducing us to Brian. And of course, stay tuned for Adam and I to digest this conversation in the first real estate podcast after show. Thanks again, Brian. Great talking to you. Thanks, Aaron and Adam. Appreciate the time. This was fun. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I share our views on the episode that just went down. 
I thought it was a great episode, in particular interesting for me, given that uh, I did work at the company. So I'm very familiar with a lot of the things he's talking about. But one that really struck home from his personal stories, you know, the continually starting in tough environments. My personal real estate career job search started in 2009, and I was not successful in 2010. Of course, for any super young listeners, that was in the throes of the global financial crisis, and nobody was really hiring. So I remember applying for jobs when your resume is pretty barren, you know, in terms of the experience category. And it was tough. You know, there'd be 400 people applying for these jobs, and you know, you'd go to three or four deep in the interview process. What I mean is, you go for three or four interviews and then lose the job, and you know, the next job posting that was a good fit couldn't come up for three or four months. It was just a terrible period. And then it was actually it was Collier's that ended up hiring me in 2010, and that was such a welcome relief. I had a baby that was under one years old at the home and it was tough times. So I was very happy to start my first day at Collier's. It was a good break from job search. Yeah, I bet. And a great place to start as we just discussed, right? I have a similar story. Not similar. I started my search in summer of 2008, but mine was a little bit different. I didn't know why I wanted to get into real estate. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My job description was office downtown because I knew I wanted to be downtown and something to do with finance in some form or fashion. Like it literally, it could be anything from insurance to mortgages to anything. And literally, I went through like a placement agency. First job that came up was First National. Went for the interview, got the job within a couple of hours. And I started like three days later. Like it was really, really simple. And then two weeks later, Bear Stearns went bankrupt and the whole world just shut down. Like that was the heart of the financial crisis. And it was bizarre because I was through the placement agency. I think they were obligated, like First National was obligated to pay the salary whether they fired me or not. So I think they would have gotten rid of me for sure because people were getting let go left, right, and center because there was nothing going on. But they couldn't let me go. So like I had a boss that said, just come in at 8.30, show me you're here, but don't sit at your desk and surf the internet. Just leave. So I would literally come in, show I was there, go to the underground, like the path in downtown Toronto read my book until noon, come back up, be like, okay, I'm here, I'm going for lunch, go back down to the path for an hour, come back up at 1pm, be like, okay, I'm here, go back down to the path, read my book for four hours, go back at five, be like, okay, I'm going home now. I did that for like four months at the time, just to show. And then they got good, they put me around, moved me around, I ended up in commercial administration, and the rest is history. Like the financial crisis, the fact that I was placed here through a placement agency. It's the only reason I ever ended up in real estate finance, commercial real estate finance. Not brain power, not charm. No, not, not, no. Skills. <laughs> no, nothing. I always say I walk fast backwards into it. Like absolute <laughs> coincidental. I do feel for younger people who are in a job search situation right now, it's got to be tough. And then even we've got a young guy that just started on my team. I'll give a shout out to Andrew McManus. And he's starting what I believe is his you know, first corporate job in real estate. And you know, that's a tough time in anybody's life. You're trying to figure out your footing in a new company, a new business, a new way of carrying your life. And you're trying to do it all via Zoom and phone calls. And you know, the training you're getting is not direct. It's got to add just a very heavy additional layer of stress to trying to adapt. He's doing a great job, but I couldn't imagine starting work in this environment. I was nervous enough walking into you know, Collier's office on day one. And even like, if you think about all the listeners, like your first five, six months, like how many questions did you ask? Like, let alone just, you know, figuring out where the washroom is and where the lunchroom is, or where do you get lunch in this neighborhood? It's like, how do you find this document? Where do you send this? What email address do I use to do this? Like just all of those little intricate processes where you would just yell out to the person next to you or pop your head up over the cubicle wall. 
now you got to make a schedule at a meeting to ask a question from somebody. Like I can't even imagine, like you said, so, so challenging. And unfortunately, First National, we've hired, I don't know, like just in the commercial space, 15, 20, 25 people since COVID started. And I'm sure we're not the only company that's experiencing that. So trying to assimilate these people, get them to understand the culture. And we talked about it with Brian, about you build up this sort of reservoir of culture and relationships. So if you got a whole handful of people starting that don't have that, that's really, really challenging. And I'd be really curious what happens when we come back to the office, if we come back to the office, when we come back to the office, to get those people into the culture and get them to understand because they now will be experienced workers, but not have any sense of you know what it's like to be sitting at a cubicle next to a whole bunch of people. It'll be very fascinating. Side tangent, we have one new hire that's a veteran in the industry, been in the industry for 10, 15 years. And he's worked for us, literally got hired like the week after COVID started. So never came into the office. He came into the office for the first time since he started working for the company last week. So he spent seven months working for the company, doing his thing. He didn't even know what floor we were on or like how to get in. It has no pass. Like that's so weird, right? Like he said he was nervous. It was like his first day on the job, even though, you know, he'd been working for us for six months. So just weird. Uh, the topic from work from home, Brian addressed that a little bit, the kind of the longer term planning, work from home, work from office, hybrid situations. Aaron is part of the planning committee and in, in operations for that. I addressed it. The commission-based work is definitely a driver, not the first national Italian commission-based, but you have salespeople that are trying to get the job done. And so motivation is not really, really a big concern. Does that factor at all in, into the planning committee meetings that we have a highly motivated workforce? I mean, for sure. I mean, think about First National, right? We've got a large commercial group, but an even larger single family group. I think it's 800 employees in the Toronto office. Quite honestly, you salespeople in our commercial sales front line, there's only 40 of you out of the 750 or whatever in this office space. So it probably doesn't come up very often. To be fair, you know, the leadership team in the commercial department, clearly we're not worried about our sales force not being motivated, right? Because don't work, don't get paid. That's fine. Like, <laughs> we all know that you guys love getting paid. Of course, that's why you are who you are. So I'm not sure that matters. To be honest, like what Brian was iterating about how nuanced it is, being in the office, like office centricity is an important thing for culture, for the incidental relationships, all that kind of stuff. I think we're probably in that same mind frame that for sure it's not going to be work from home all the time if you want to. I think there's going to be a requirement for some office engagement by all employees for some period of, of time. What that looks like and when, that of course, is to be determined by basically every company out there right now. Yeah, we also have the interesting wrinkle in our upcoming timeline that we're moving to a new office in a year. So you've got an additional concern for new space. We were talking about plans for 2020. Brian's talking about how it hasn't really shifted, you know, be there for your clients. But one thing that I did find humorous from the first national sales conference meeting, we were strategizing about, you know, risk factors on the horizon. And our discussions was around insurance. And we, as a podcast, we did an episode on the rising insurance costs earlier this year. So we weren't wrong that significantly rising insurance costs are an actual threat. It is impacting NOI. But this was so tough to see coming. Virtually every company that did strategic planning at the start of the year probably did not include global pandemic in their mix. And so it's really challenging people's ability to think on their feet, adapt quickly, and struggle through adversity. It's interesting that the best laid plans don't ultimately matter when the world takes a big shift. I suspect, we didn't really get into it with Brian, but you know, I suspect there is some concern, it's probably the right word, there is some concern with just how long this lasts. Because if you're a retailer office leasing department, I mean, clearly that's going to be really challenging right now. Brokerage, as we know, I mean, the transaction numbers are way down. So there is still some challenges in the real estate community. 
we're almost blind to it, Adam. Fortunately, on the financing side, it's been really, really busy because there are refinances and renewals and people still need to lever their assets, whether they're purchasing or not. So we've been very fortunate that we've had such a good year. But I think that's probably unusual for most of our counterparts within the community. I think Brian kind of talked about it. Like he's working really hard to keep everybody motivated. But clearly everything, transactions, volumes, you know, leasing volumes, everything's down, right? And with this second wave that's hitting, who knows what the horizon, the time frame that this is going to last for. Yeah, I mean, there was a hard pause for everybody in March on the purchase and sales side for sure. And that activity has picked up a little bit. And when you talk to people on the front lines, you know, people that are client facing at the brokerage houses, conversation is revolving around pent up demand and that the back half of the year you know, could be quite large. But then you know, how does the second wave impact that pent-up demand? Maybe that demand just gets further you know, kicked down the line into 2021. Not that it isn't there, not that there isn't piles of capital looking to get into real estate, but we're really trying to aim at a moving target here in terms of what the rest of the year looks like. And maybe the pent-up demand doesn't come to fruition given that cases are rising. When we interviewed Michael Cooper, he's one of those guys that's sitting on a pile of cash ready to go. I don't think he was... I mean, at the time, this is a couple of months ago, but he wasn't planning on selling anything and he was looking to buy, like most well-capitalized institutions, just waiting for the right time to strike. And he said, after the crisis in 2008, it took 18 months before any kind of significant transaction occurred, before there were two arms length people come together and agree to, to make a, like a major transaction. So using 18 months as your guide from March 1st, we're six months in, so we got another 12 months before things really start to pick back up to the way they were pre-COVID. I hope that's wrong, but it feels like that might be an actual time horizon. I don't want to end on a sour note. So I would like to comment one more time that the Christopher Walken impression was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's end on a positive note. So I'm Debbie Downer this morning, apparently. <laughs> we should really stick to doing afternoon podcasts. <laughs> yeah, way better in the afternoon after lunch, right? Yeah. But yeah, Brian was a great guest. I liked his energy throughout. You know, I think he's the right man for that job to carry Colliers through this storm. Yeah, and forward and beyond. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.